All right. I want to start tonight by reading some verses from Revelation 5. These are actually the same verses that I preached on at Easter. A little bit different focus tonight, but felt like the important place to start as we talk about prayer. Revelation 5 says this, And then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated upon the throne, a scroll written both on the inside and on the outside. It had been sealed with seven seals. Then a mighty heavenly messenger proclaimed with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No creature of creation in all heaven, on all the earth, or even under the earth, could open the scroll or look into its mysteries. Then I began to mourn and weep bitterly, because no creature of creation was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look into its mysteries. Then one of the elders consoled me. The elder said, stop weeping, look there, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered and is able to break its seven seals and open the scroll. I looked and between the throne and the four living creatures and the 24 elders stood a lamb who appeared to have been slaughtered. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. The eyes are the seven spirits God sent out over all the earth. The lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated upon the throne. And when he took it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell prostrate before the lamb. They worshiped him and each one held a harp and golden bowls filled with incense. And this translation has it in parentheses, but all translations include this notation. Those, those bowls filled with incense were filled with the prayers of God's holy people. I want to remind you, uh, come back to that thought in just a minute, but remind you first what revelation is, because there's a lot of weird stuff there, right? Creatures and seven spirits and eyes and all these kinds of things. But revelation, we're told at the very beginning, is this is the revelation of Jesus the anointed, the liberating king, an account of visions and a heavenly journey. God granted this to him so he would show his followers the realities that are already breaking into the world and soon will be fulfilled. So as we talked about on Easter, this is kind of a behind the scenes, excuse me, behind the scenes look at Jesus opening the scroll, which is, uh, it contains the words that describe the redemption of the whole world, that lay out God's plan of reconciling all things to himself. And right there in Jesus' presence, part of this culminating scene, I mean, if the, if the Bible were a big novel, if the Bible were a big movie, this scene would be like the ultimate moment in the film where everything comes to a head and the hero comes into the room and nobody thinks it can happen. And, and the lion, who is also the lamb, opens the scroll of God's redemption. And right there in the middle of that scene, which we're told is happening now, not just a future thing, but is a revelation of the things that are already breaking into the world. Right in the middle of that are your prayers. It's not just a symbol. It's not just the prayers of like Abraham and Moses and Sarah. It's not just the prayers of the all-stars. It's the prayers of the saints. And that's you and that's me right in the middle of the most important scene in some ways, for our existence in the scriptures. A theologian, Walter Wink, 
said, history belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. I'm not sure we believe that. <laughs> I'm not sure we believe that this is what is actually shaping our stories and the story of the world is our prayers. And so I want to start, this sermon is going to be a lot less dramatic for the most part than that scene, but I want to start with this dramatic reminder of the importance of prayer. History does not belong to the president or to the president before this president or to the president after this president. If you're pinning your hope on the reshaping of history by getting rid of what we've got and getting something better, history will not belong to that president either. So good news wherever you stand on that account. History doesn't belong to the rich or the powerful or the corporations or the celebrities. History doesn't belong to fate. It doesn't belong to your bad luck or to your bad choices. That's not where the power of history lies. None of those things. History belongs to the lamb who opens the scroll surrounded by the bowls full of prayers of the people who pray. It's that simple. It belongs to, as Paul puts it, Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes, who prays for us. History, big history, the shaping of the world and the things to come, your personal history, your story, your life, the life of the people you know and love, history is shaped by prayer, by your prayers and by the prayers of Jesus. That's what the scriptures tell us. It's a big claim, but it's central to what we get in the scriptures. We, through our prayers and in other ways, but through our prayers, are active participants in God's unfolding story, and we have an impact on what happens next. What we do in prayer, I talked about this a little bit when we looked at this passage before, but what we do in prayer may not always feel like um, it's doing what we want it to do. It may not always make us feel like we want it to make us feel. It may not always create the outcomes that we have in mind here and now. But all of this, all of our prayer is not only echoing in the heavens, it is present and it is relevant as Jesus opens the scroll that will set humanity free. That's a big deal. And it ought to inform the way we think about and approach prayer in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't always seem that way. It doesn't always, uh, it's not always hard for us, to, uh, not always easy for us to summon that kind of motivation, that kind of inspiration, that kind of understanding of the impact and the import of our praying. This is no, le this, this sermon um, is, uh, I, I've said this the last couple of weeks, this is true in a little bit different way. The sermon's not the easiest one in the world for me to preach because it's, it's not easier for me because I'm a preacher. Uh, I don't know if, I think most of you know that kind of thing, um, but I just, it doesn't just naturally happen that I uh, spend two or three hours a day locked in a closet praying. Um, it doesn't ever happen that I do that. Um, 
It's not any easier for, for me than it is for other. In fact, sometimes for people like me, for pastors, um, praying is something that we can dread because we're the ones always expected to do it, right? If you're a, if you're a minister and you uh, go to like a family gathering and you're the only minister in the room, it, you just are like, can we show up after everybody started eating so I don't have to say another blessing? in front of people who aren't really that interested in like prayer. They just feel like they have to do it, and I'm the preacher, so I'm going to do it, right? The one gift to me is that I come from a, a family full of preachers. My mom is the youngest of five siblings, and at some point in all of the lives of the five of them, they were either uh, pastors or married to pastors, and in one case, both, husband and wife were pastors. Um, and my I have two younger brothers. One is a worship leader who doesn't currently have a church and is leading worship in four services today. Um, that's how bad we got it. Um, and the other is in the process of becoming an Anglican priest. The only person I know who has more of this in their family or as much of this in their family is Jim Bachak, who comes from the same kind of family. It's, it's a gift in that when we all get together for Thanksgiving, there's still only like a one in 20 chance I'm gonna get asked to pray before Thanksgiving meal. Um, but, but prayer doesn't come easier for me. I, I, I opened a lot of books in preparation for this sermon and I pulled one out uh, for the first time, I think yesterday, and it's a little book I've had on my shelf for I don't know how long, for years. I actually dug it out of a box with some other prayer books and, you know, because we're moving every 12 months at this point in our lives. And so a lot of my stuff is still in the garage, uh, which is handy because we're moving it again in a few weeks. But um, so I pulled this book out and I realized I never opened this. And I'm like, this might be helpful. I looked at kind of the table of contents. There's a few chapters here that seem interesting. That started turning the pages. And it was just a book about preachers praying about praying as a preacher. And I was like, come on, this is already hard enough for me. I don't need somebody telling me all the things I'm doing wrong by not praying enough as a preacher. This is a tough topic for a lot of us. Some of you may come really naturally. My story is that uh, it was a very difficult area of life for me for a long time. Had a little bit of a breakthrough, I don't know, in my 20s or so. And the, the, the remnants of that have stuck with me in a way that... Uh, changed my sort of ongoing throughout the day dialogue with God, but didn't make setting aside time and energy to pray any easier for me. So that's where I'm coming from. Uh, we're all coming from a different place. So here, I, I want to say two primary things to us today, and then Jeff's going to talk uh, in a more specific way, a more practical way at some level about uh, this as a spiritual discipline next week. But I want to say these two things today and be sure that we know these. Number one, your prayers matter to God. And number two, your prayers matter for you. I'm going to talk underneath each of those headings a little bit more specifically and try to end with some practical suggestions. But this is the big picture, and I want to be sure that we get it. So I want to start with this understanding that your prayers matter to God. Um, and the first, uh, I'll say four things about that. I ended up with a lot of bullet points tonight. Um, Prayer is expected in God's people. We're going to talk through these. God is paying attention. Prayer is not irrelevant to an all-powerful God. And then deal with this question of what about unanswered prayer and God's silence in our lives, okay? So I want to start with this idea that prayer is expected for God's people. 
this is clear from the way that Jesus talked to his disciples, to his followers, and the way that I think he talks to us in Matthew 6. You've got four examples where he says, and when you pray, but when you pray again, and when you pray, and then pray like this. It's an assumed thing that his followers, for his followers, that prayer will just be a normal part of the rhythm of our lives. Okay? In Luke 11, he instructs uh, his followers to ask, to seek, to knock. We'll come back to that, that those sentences in, in a little bit. But he tells us to talk to him, to talk to the Father, to ask, to seek from him, to knock on his door. In Luke 18, we're told that Jesus told a parable urging them to keep praying and never grow discouraged. Because we do, and, and we will. So we get it from Jesus really clearly. It's also throughout the rest of the New Testament. In Colossians 4, Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he tells us to pray without ceasing. In Ephesians 6, he writes, pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. There is a sort of continuousness about prayer that, that comes out again and again in Paul's writing. In Romans 12, he tells us to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Then it's, there is a, an element of faithfulness expected of us in the way that we pray. So that, that's the first little piece of this is that... Um, it's not about rules, but it's really clear that it's an assumption that God's people will pray, okay? The next two things that I want to talk about are these truths that God is paying attention and that prayer is not irrelevant to him because he has all the power, which is what we often talk ourselves into. What does it matter? What I think? Is he really, is he going to do what he's going to do no matter what I pray or what I ask? And I, and I want us to see that he's listening and that it matters, that it's not irrelevant to him, okay? Uh, the, the first and obvious example of, most obvious example is what we already read, that in Revelation 5, at the culminating scene in the whole story, there surrounding the lamb as he opens the scroll are bowls full of our prayers. If they weren't relevant, they wouldn't be present in that moment. But there's other clear articulation in the scriptures that God is listening and that our prayers matter to him. Psalm 65, 2 says, you hear to God, it says, you hear us pray in words and silence. I love the way that that psalm is written. All humanity comes into your presence. God is listening to us even when we aren't speaking. His ear is turned toward us. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, just ask and it'll be given to you. Seek after it and you will find. Continue to knock and the door will be opened to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this tonight, but if you look at, at, at the things that matter in prayer in the scriptures, one of the things you'll see repeatedly is this idea of continue to knock, persist, be faithful. It's not about one shot and you're done. It's not about, well, God knows what I want. For some reason, the scriptures tell us it matters that we are persistent. Continue to knock and the door will be open for you. All who ask, receive. Those who seek, find what they seek. And he who knocks will have the door opened. John writes this in 1 John 5. I'm writing all of this to you who have entrusted your lives to the Son of God. So that's you, if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight. So you will realize eternal life is already, your, already is yours. 
We live in the bold confidence that God hears our voices when we ask for things that fit his plan. And if we have no doubt that he hears our voices, we can be assured that he moves in response to our call. The scriptures tell us that God is paying attention and that prayer is not irrelevant to a God who has all power. Um, before I get to that last part, I, just a couple of illustrations, I think even from the life of Jesus, uh, that this is true, that God is listening and, and that our prayers, the things that we ask are relevant, that it's necessary, that it's important that we talk to God. First of all, um, to this notion that, well, God already knows what he's going to do, so why does it matter that we pray? I, I would just say that um, we're meant to follow the example of Jesus, as I've said in previous weeks. I'm no better than him. You're no better than him. If it was necessary for him, it's going to be necessary for us. And Jesus actually knew the will of the Father in, in a way that we don't, and he still saw it as important and necessary to pray, to ask the Father for things. Jesus was aligned with the Father's will, but even though he already knew the will of the Father, it was important to him to pray, and he prayed a lot, as we talked about last week. Uh, he believed it was necessary. There's a scene in the scriptures where someone brings a sick boy to Jesus and his disciples, and the disciples are praying for the boy, trying to heal him, and it's not working. And they're kind of looking at Jesus like, this is what you told us to do, and nothing's happening here. Um, and when they ask Jesus why nothing's happening, he basically says, well, you, it's, it's a lack of prayer for you guys which is an interesting dynamic. I don't know what they were doing exactly in trying to heal the boy. So I don't, it's not entirely clear to us. Uh, does he mean that in this moment, while they're trying to heal this boy, that they're not praying? That seems unlikely, right? It seems like part of the scene would be them asking God, in Jesus, or at least speaking in God's name, but some kind of prayer would be going on. So it, it, for me, uh, it lends itself to wondering if he meant the disciples are not praying regularly and then trying to walk into the scene and act like they have access in a way that they haven't been rehearsing. Just like we talked about last week, you're not going to be able to do what Jesus would do and be like Jesus would be if you're not living like him in the quiet spaces. It's like trying to hit a baseball when they haven't picked up a bat in two or three years. So we don't know exactly what happens there, but what we do know is they can't get the boy healed and Jesus says the reason is a lack of prayer. Your prayer matters. Even with Jesus in the space, the healing isn't coming for some reason because of a lack of prayer. And Jesus clearly believed that, that God would answer. It's obvious in the way that he prays. So then there's this, this question of if God, if our prayer matters to God, if he's listening, if he's responding, what do we do about unanswered prayers? What do we do about these seasons in our lives when it feels like God is silent? This is a real thing uh, that we would pray pray, even good prayers, and that we wouldn't get the outcomes we desire. There used to be uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, which is used in other traditions and, and used in the Anglican tradition in the Church of England, there used to be a prayer that got recited regularly that the sovereign, that the royalty in the country would live long lives. 
And this is a prayer that was written down, that was in their prayer book, that got prayed in their personal devotions, that got prayed in their churches. It was probably uttered from humans to whom we're told God is listening millions of times. And somewhere along the way, someone did a study and discovered that among the people groups in their area, that members of the royal family actually lived shorter lives than most other groups in the country. Why do you do that? <laughs> it's been prayed over and over again, and the opposite is happening. And I don't have to go to England for examples. We know about this, right? We know what it's like to pray things that we really want and that seem clearly to be in alignment with the will of God and not get them. Um, so I want to look at two, uh, I want to mention two moments in the life of Jesus that I hope will give us some insight into this, though there is some mystery involved in this that I'm not going to pretend I can wipe away. So just bear with me on that part. But I do think that we can gain some understanding and some maturity in the way that we view the Lord and we view our prayers, even when, when these kinds of prayers don't seem to be answered. So first, b both of these moments are right here at the end of the life of Jesus. Um, one of them is when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword to fight them. And you have to put yourself in Peter's shoes at this point. Uh, it, it, this notion that Jesus would be taken off, put in jail, and killed disrupts everything he understands about what God is trying to do in this moment. So it's not shocking that he would try to keep it from happening. But when he does this, uh, Jesus says to Peter, what, what do you think? Do you think I can't call to the Father and he'll just instantaneously give me charge over what he says are more than 12 legions of angels. That's more than 72,000 angels in Roman military terms, which is who they were dealing with. So that's one thing that happens. When Jesus is about to be arrested and killed, he resists Peter's effort to resist and reminds Peter, I have access to the Father who can bring warring angels into the scene and deal with all of this. Okay, And this is in the context of Jesus having pulled away and prayed to the Father and asked him to let the cup of his crucifixion pass to say, I really don't want to die this way. If there's any other way, can we talk about it now? That's what he says. But he concludes by saying, not, but, but ultimately... It's not about what I want. It's about your will. So given this question, what do we do with when God doesn't answer prayer? God doesn't make things happen that seem obvious. I look at these two scenes and I ask, why is Jesus in the first case not praying that prayer? <laughs> why is he not asking for those angels? And then in the second case, why is God not answering Jesus' prayer? If there's another way, can you bring it? Why is that not happening? I think we have some, some clue to this prior to all of this happening when Jesus said some things to his followers in John 12. He said this, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat is planted in the ground and dies, it remains a solitary seed. But when it is planted, it produces in death a great harvest. 
The one who loves this life will lose it, and the one who despises it in this world will have life forevermore. And then he says this, anyone who serves me must follow my path. So this thing I've just said about the difference in life and death and the way things go and the upside down nature of it and the fact that life sometimes comes out of the falling, comes out of the death. For anyone who serves me, who wants to follow my path, anyone who serves me must follow my path. They're gonna experience the same truth. Anyone who serves me will wanna be where I am and he will be honored by the Father. My spirit is low and unsettled. There's part of this reality for Jesus that is unpleasant. How can I ask the Father to save me from this hour? This hour is the purpose for which I have come into the world. But what I can say is this, Father, glorify your name. I believe that we're meant to both pray fervently for the things of God's kingdom here and now, in faith to pray for them, to ask for them, and to believe that God is building a kingdom that isn't always going to fit my grid of what should happen, even maybe when it comes to the purpose of my life or the purpose of your life. So there may be moments where we have to embrace that I'm gonna pray for the thing that I want and that seems consistent with the kingdom of God, but I'm still gonna have to accept the fact that God is doing things that sometimes seem upside down and it may have a dramatic impact on what I discovered to be the purpose of my life or the purpose of your life that is not pleasant to me, but that I trust God is doing something. And I have to believe that nothing is wasted in his kingdom. I have to have faith that nothing is wasted. The grain of wheat that falls to the ground, Jesus said, produces in its death a great harvest. And for everyone who wants to be with me, they're going to deal with that same way, he tells us. You have to believe that there is more going on in your life, in my life, in the lives of the people around us than the immediate and the obvious, or you will lose heart. It will stop making sense. You will stop having the faith to endure if you don't believe that there's more going on than what is obvious to us with our eyes. So I just want to say this to us as a group. If you're still stuck because we have prayed for things that we wanted and that seemed like God's will and they didn't happen, it may be time to dig for a deeper faith I want to say something specific here, not just, hey, you should have more faith, but to dig for a deeper faith that the harvest that we can't see yet is real. And that it will grow, it, hear me, that harvest will grow from some of our seemingly unanswered prayers. I think it's time for us to dig for faith, not just that God is in control and he's doing things that we can't imagine, that's all true, but that the harvest that's coming will actually come as a result of some of our prayers that today we think were not answered. And I think some of that will happen even before heaven, but I also think that there is a kingdom of heaven that is eternal that the scriptures say make these moments that we're struggling to reconcile seem like a vapor. 
and that blows my mind, and I don't know how to do, deal with all of that and reconcile, like, how am I supposed to still live day to day? It creates a lot of questions, I know. But I think it's true. I think we're expected to have faith that God is already working these things out and that what we're experiencing now will seem like come, come and gone when, when the whole thing is unfolded for us. We will see life and hope and healing in ways that I think will reconcile our losses and vindicate our drawing closer to God in prayer even when we don't get what we want now. We will not look like fools. And I think this understanding and this kind of faith matters because there are moments when what we want is truly consistent with what we understand to be God's will. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't want to suffer the cross. How, how can you look at that and go, Jesus, come on. Obviously, it's God's will that you would die on a cross. We think that because we live 2,000-something years in looking backwards, right? In the moment... Wouldn't it seem consistent with God's will that his son would not get assassinated three years into his ministry? That's what Jesus wanted, and it, and it seems like it would be consistent with God's will. The, har the armies of heaven should conquer the oppressive armies of the earth, right? That seems consistent. In that moment when Jesus had the opportunity to pull that off, and today, that seems like it would be consistent with God's will that God's armies would conquer the evil, dark, oppressive, killing armies of this earth, right? Jesus, this, is, this whole thing at the, at the garden and the crucifixion is, is, a, is a tug of war between Jesus and Satan. Jesus should win in that scene between him and Satan, right? That seems consistent with, with God's will. And... We can pull that into our space. It seemed consistent with God's will that Brock would not die. It seems consistent with God's will that some of us would not have lost parents early, would not have lost children, would not have lost marriages, would not have lost jobs. It seems consistent with God's will that members of this church wouldn't leave when we have disagreements and struggle through difficult issues. Or that we wouldn't make it so that they don't feel safe here. All of that seems consistent with what we know of the kingdom. So there are moments when what we want, I believe, is truly consistent with what we understand of God's will. But in our praying, we discover, first of all, we're not God. And second, that we haven't fully figured God out. And there are moments when the grain of wheat is going to fall so that the harvest can come. It's not how I would have drawn it up. But I'm not God, and you should be glad. When he hears our prayers, when God hears our prayers, and says, like a good father sometimes does, hey, you're not wrong to want that. And it's coming in a way that you won't be able to see or understand right now. I think he also says, but I hear you, and I'm with you. And I think that's what we should be listening for. 
is that reassurance that he hears us and that he's with us. And rather than driving us away from a God who doesn't do what we want all the time, even when what we ask was asked in faith and even what we asked seems to be in line with the kingdom, I think these moments should drive us deeper into him so that we don't miss the harvest. Because if we pull back, we'll miss it. I think these moments should drive us deeper into him so that we don't miss the harvest, not only when the grain that that fell sprouts to life, but again, when our prayers that were offered in faith are there in bowls around the harvest. I don't want us to miss that. I think Jesus will say, your prayers were not futile. They were not in vain. They are part of the road to this beautiful harvest. You just couldn't always see around the corner. And so all the more we pray to draw near to the God who is working toward that harvest so that we can join him in the work and so that we can be with him as he brings the kingdom to bear in the midst of our uncertainty and our struggle. And we remember, even when the grains of wheat fall, that God is with us in the falling. And that's a hard thing sometimes for us to reconcile about God, that he is all-powerful and that he has been there. He saw his own son fall. That's, That's why we have those words. He saw his own son fall so the harvest could begin for you and me and be insured. And he's with us as we join him with our own losses along the way. And those are his losses too, but he won't see them wasted. He won't. I know parts of this um, are still difficult and confusing. They are for me too, but I I, I just want to admonish us to persist in praying and persist in working through this so that we can know and believe that God is with us, that he sees us, that he hears us, that he responds, that he cares. Okay, so that's the first big part of tonight. I promise you the second part is much shorter. Um, Even as we do that, even as we persist in our understanding and believing that our prayers matter to God, I want us to also catch what Augustine said when he said, we pray so that we ourselves may be constructed, not so that God may be instructed. And to say that in a simpler way, your prayers matter for you. I want to mention four ways that I think they matter for us. And then I'm just going to run through some suggestions that I think will push us further into this. Your prayers matter for you as nourishment. There's a point where Jesus is heading off to fast and pray and his disciples are worried because he's not going to, doesn't have food or drink. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Prayer nourishes you. Even when it doesn't feel like it does. We'll talk more about that as we go. Another reason uh, that prayer matters for you is that it brings you back into a place of submission. We don't like that word. I'm going to, I think, preach a whole sermon on submission as a spiritual discipline toward the back end of the series. But just in short form, I just want to say as a personal testimony, I need to remind myself multiple times a day that it ain't about me, that I'm not in charge and that God is. And so this may be as simple for you as just hourly reminding yourself to stop and tell yourself and acknowledge before God that he's God and you're not. 
And it sounds obvious and silly, and we all know that, except we live like tyrants of our own lives constantly. <laughs> if you don't think so, I'll be happy to sit down and we'll walk through your life and your decisions and mine and find that it's true for both of us. Prayer brings you back into a place of submission. Prayer also enables us to join God instead of vice versa. We tend to ask God to join us, and prayer gives us an opportunity to join God in what he's doing. Oswald Chambers, who says lots of things that will make you like bleed all over the room from the ways that he damages uh, your pride about prayer, says this, prayer altered, alters us on the inside, alters our mind and our attitude to things. The point of praying is not that we get things from God, but that we learn by prayer to detect the difference between God's order and God's permissive will. He's going to define this a little bit. God's order is no pain, no sickness, no devil, no war, no sin. His permissive will is all these things. That just means God's in control and he allows all these things to exist at this point in time. What we need to do is get hold of God's order in the kingdom on the inside. Then we will begin to see how to handle the riddle of the universe on the outside. Prayer enables us to join God instead of asking God to join us. One little asterisk. There's a point in this quote where he says, the second sentence, he says, the point of praying is not, the point of praying is, just know that if you read stuff on praying, you're going to come across a thousand of those things, and most of them are really helpful, and they're all incomplete. <laughs> Doesn't uh, s completely capture what the point of prayer is or isn't, okay? Last thing that I think, way that I think prayer is good for us is we discipline ourselves to faith instead of just wishing for more faith. Our trust, um, and, and this is true in any relationship, trust is nourished with time, with presence, with proximity, not with distance and just waiting for it to happen. Okay, so we'll talk about, um, I, I think you'll get more of this with um, some of what Jeff's going to talk about. And I also want to say that the point of this is go and learn. <laughs> Prayer has to be learned. And that's the last thing I want to say and put on the screen um, are some, some practical suggestions for how to change and build this discipline into your life is just go learn how to pray. And here are my suggestions for that. First suggestion for learning how to pray is just pray. Just, just do it. Henry Nouwen faced this dilemma that we all face and said, why should I spend an hour in prayer when I do nothing during that time but think about people I'm angry with, people who are angry with me, books I should read and books I should write, and thousands of other silly things that happen to grab my mind for a moment. This is, most of us, this is one of our biggest battles, right? It's this kind of stuff. Why do I keep setting aside a time when I'm supposed to be praying and this is what happens? And ultimately, he concludes this. We must pray not, first of all, because it feels good or helps. This is encouraging, right? But because God loves us and wants our attention. So there's that. And then he says, sitting in the presence of God for one hour each morning, day after day, week after week, and month after month, in total confusion and with a myriad of distractions, radically changes my life. Just do it, okay? We talk about later what's happening, what's not happening, how to change that but just do it and believe that it will change your life. Next thing, focus on scripture. Just practical, quick, easy helps. Tons of prayer in scripture. Find them, read them, own them, okay? 
Next, use your imagination. People are scared to death of this kind of advice from a pastor, but I have no qualms about telling you, use your imagination in prayer. Everything needs to be guided by the scripture and the spirit and tested in the community of faith. But listen, the spirit of God is alive in you. It's not just off in a distant space that you're trying to pray to when you look at the sky and try to pray and imagine that God's there listening. The spirit is in you. Use your imagination to actualize that, believe that, and be in communion with the spirit that lives in you. Keep it simple. This doesn't have to be complex. Most of us fail because we're trying to become some image of some great prayer. That's not the point. It is about simple dialogue between you and God. Focus on presence. And by that, I mean your presence and God's presence. Don't get bogged down by a bunch of complicated stuff. Just focus on trying to be present and believe that God is present with you. Pray with and around other people. This is helpful. This is one of my hard spaces. That may sound weird because I'm a, it's easy for me to pray up here. Um, in certain ways, it's easy for me to pray alone. I, get it, it, I have this weird space in between where I sometimes have a hard time praying with people. Pray with and pray around other people. Learn from them. Do it in community. Use other people's prayers. We, if you grew up evangelical, you probably got like guilted all over the church uh, with the idea of written prayers or liturgical prayers. And I'll let Jeff handle a lot of this next week. But there are so many good prayers that people have written down that have changed my life <laughs> because I've just prayed them and made them my own. Some of them, there's one I pray, I, I, I never want to say every night, but every night that I'm focused there's a prayer, same thing I pray every night. It changes me. It has changed me. Use other people's prayers. Study about prayer. If you have a specific struggle, let me know and I'll point you to some resources. I've got a ton of resources I can point you to. I'm not just going to throw a thousand of them at you tonight, but there's a lot of good stuff out there on prayer that's helpful, that's not just over your head, crazy. I can't access that. There's a lot of really helpful, res uh, there are a lot of really helpful resources about prayer. And then the last thing I want to say is have a plan. Chambers, again, uh, goes for the throat here and says, we can choke God's word with a yawn. We can hinder the time that should be spent with God by remembering we have other things to do. I haven't time. Of course you have not time. Take time, strangle some other interests, and make time to realize that the center of power in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a plan. Make time for it. Okay? If you wanted those things, they are back on the screen. All right, I'm done. Um, one specific way that you can approach this uh, as a spiritual discipline, Jeff is going to introduce us to next week, um, fixed hour prayer, daily hours. There's different kinds of names for this, and I'm really excited to, see, uh, to hear from him next week. Uh, but, but just as I said last week, I just want to say again, we can't cover everything. We can't cover, we're trying to cover a lot of disciplines because I feel like that's helpful and important to us as a church, but that also limits how deep we can go. I had this seesaw effect all week in preparing for the sermon of first not wanting to preach it. And then as I really started digging in and working on it, wanting to preach, stop and preach a whole series <laughs> on it. Um, and then by today, not wanting to preach it at all again, um, just because there's so much. And it's hard to, to do it in a confined space and keep moving through other disciplines that I think are important to us. So let me finally say this about tonight and next week and all the disciplines we talk about. 
This is meant to propel you in. This is not meant to give you a set of instructions that everyone should follow exactly the same way. This is not meant to give you everything you will possibly need. This is meant to propel you in. So go, dig in, take ownership of your soul (laughs) and learn to pray and discipline yourself to pray. We're gonna take communion and sing a little bit more, but let me pray for us before we do that. Father, what... um, I think when we first come to faith, what seems to us like the most obvious and simple of things to do as your children somehow becomes more complicated, more burdensome, um, and in some ways more discouraging at different seasons for us. So we, I, I just say with confidence, um, standing here on behalf of all of us in the room, that we have experienced or are experiencing that range of, of struggle and success and joy and difficulty with this particular area of our lives. And so I don't think you're playing hide and seek with us. I don't think you mean for this to be difficult. I think we're living in that in between the human experience and the complete fulfillment of your kingdom. And so give us grace and give us faith to take steps forward, even steps into spaces that we maybe have feel like I've been there before and I'm afraid to go back or I don't want to go back. Would you give us faith to move forward and to be people who believe that you hear our prayers, that you respond to our prayers and that we are changed, that we are made who you created us to be when we pray when we come into your presence, we invite you into our presence. We pray that in Jesus' name. Come and remember Jesus' sacrifice for you.